0: There's no word beyond that given to us in Scripture. There's no word that trumps the Scriptures. There's no word that even stands alongside as equal to what is given us to know in Scripture.
1: Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. You're listening to episode 109 and I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. Cornelis Venema, president of Mid-America Reformed Seminary and professor of doctrinal studies here, begins a series on a very important matter that we see happening in the church today, and that is the discussion surrounding homosexuality and the church's response to it. Of utmost importance to this discussion is the foundation of God's word, and that's where Dr. Venema will begin as well, the doctrine of of Scripture.
0: Recently, I was invited to make a presentation at a CRC church in southern Minnesota, and they invited me to reflect on the theme of our understanding of the Scriptures, the Word of God, and its authority in the church, and to do so in the light of contemporary challenges and In some respects, not to overstate the matter, what might be called a crisis as it relates to the church's submission to the authority of Scripture in our time. So my title was, Abiding in the Word of Christ, the Church's Present Challenge. And the particular crisis or challenge that they had in mind and that I addressed was the church's engagement with the whole question of, broadly speaking, human sexuality, but more particularly... uh, homosexual, so-called marriage, and issues pertaining to the gospel witness of the church as it relates to the promotion and advocacy in our time of such same-sex marriages and issues pertaining to the Scripture's teaching on the topic, and in what way the church should speak and bear witness in our culture to this particular issue. And when I use the language of challenge or crisis— I have in mind particularly the words of Martin Luther. We're all familiar with what Martin Luther said at the Diet of Worms about where he stood. He could not do otherwise, and that was on the basis of Scripture. But there's another well-known statement of Luther that's often quoted, and I'll quote it now and then begin in this session with, as brief as I can make it, a broad overview of our understanding of Scripture and its authority in the Church. These are Luther's words. He said, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point that the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly, I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages is where the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on the battlefield besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. And that's really the issue. There's a very large uh, study committee report recently presented to the CRC on the subject of human sexuality, and it draws, I think, the proper conclusion that to use Luther's language, I can profess Christ, but I'm not confessing Christ. It really is this question of Scripture in relation to The Modern Debate About Homosexual Marriage and Human Sexuality, it really is a true test as to whether the church will—many different denominations are facing this issue in a variety of contexts and ways, but it's an inescapable challenge, and it really tests the church in terms of her confession. Now, let me go to the doctrine of Scripture in broad outline and what really is at stake in this. Most of our hearers probably are familiar with the expression sola scriptura by the scriptures alone the expression doesn't mean that the bible is not to be read within a context that is in in and within the church with appropriate respect for the way in which the scriptures have been interpreted by the church and particularly in terms of that the way that gets summarized in the creeds and confessions but it is language sola scriptura that expresses the Church of the Reformation's conviction that the confessing Church of the Lord Jesus Christ is no church at all if it abandons and does not abide in the Word of Christ. The um, Supreme Standard, the very last article, the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith says that all determinations regarding what we believe or practice as Church of Jesus Christ— has to be based upon what the Holy Spirit is saying to us in and with the Word. And that was the challenge at the time of the Reformation. It's our challenge today. Oftentimes, people disparage a high view of Scripture by saying, well, we need to listen to the voice of Christ and discern His voice. But as to the text and the actual written word, as we have it in the canon of the Old and New Testaments, That's a different matter. It's striking that our Lord in John 10, when he describes himself in relationship to the church, he describes the church as a flock, he describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And then he defines himself in relationship to the flock and the flock in relationship to himself in language like this. Those who are his flock, they hear and listen to his his voice. They abide in his word. He knows them, and they know him. And you can tell they know him because when he speaks, they follow. It's a very simple analogy, but it tells us that listening to the voice of Christ as it comes to us through the scriptures is not a matter of indifference. It lies at the very heart of what the church is and who Christ is as the one who purchased that church with his own precious blood owns the church we belong to him and we look to him indeed it's striking to me that the very first confession of the Re- reformation church in 1528 at bern begins with a an echoing of the language of john ten the church of jesus christ abides in the word of christ listens to the word of christ and does not give attention to the voice of strangers. Now, to articulate the doctrine of Scripture, we have to begin with what we call its inspiration. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, not some portion, but the whole of Scripture and all of its parts, all Scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God and is therefore profitable for instruction, for teaching in righteousness, and so on. What that means in simple terms is that when we read the Word of God inscripturated in the Old and New Testaments, we are reading the very Word of God. It may come to us through real authors, human authors whom God uses, but they were, as Peter says, born along by the Holy Spirit. So what they say is not by any human will, but comes to us from God himself. The simplest implication of any view that takes seriously the inspiration of Scripture is that this is the very Word of God. To be received, as Calvin comments on Peter's language in his commentary on First Peter, Second uh, Peter rather, we should receive the Word written with the same reverence and submission as we receive God himself. That means that when it comes to an issue like the question of homosexuality and debates today within the church, we have to always ask the question, what do the scriptures say? What does God say? It's striking how in the New Testament, in keeping with the understanding of the word as God breathed or inspired, it's often said expressions are used like God says, the Holy Spirit says, language like it is written, it says. That language is replete. You can find it all throughout the New Testament scriptures. Our Lord Himself, interestingly, when tempted of the devil in the wilderness, in all of His responses to the diverse temptations, He goes, the Word become flesh, goes to the Word inscripturated. Think of His quotation from Deuteronomy 8. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Lord, by every word of the Lord, if Christ, the word become flesh, who is the way, the truth, and the life, submitted himself wholeheartedly, his meat was to do the will of his father, conformed his life and labor to what God makes known concerning him in the Old Testament scriptures, you can understand why this issue is so significant. In fact, in the Belgic Confession, you know, perhaps, the very first mark, the telltale distinguishing characteristic of the true Church of Jesus Christ is that it's a church where all things are managed, Article 29 says, according to the pure Word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the Church. Now, I would be the first to acknowledge We're not going to take up in this section or session uh, directly the question, well, what does the Scripture say about the question that is before us, the challenge the Church presently faces? Uh, We'll see when we do that that there are many, even within the Church, who will try to argue for a revisionist, non-traditional view that maintains that the Scriptures do not speak clearly to the question as the Church confronts it today, and that we need to take a second look and perhaps even approve some forms of same-sex, monogamous relationships between men and men and women and women. Uh, I'm not going to address that here, but uh, we, have, we have to, of course, interpret the Scriptures. It's one thing to say they're inspired, given by God, they're to be received as having the authority of their divine author and that the church is in a dangerous place if not ceasing to be church if it openly uh defies what the word of god teaches or tolerates teachings that are and practices that are contrary to scripture uh but we're not going to go into the questions of interpretation here but one of the big issues that we face regarding the doctrine of scripture is in terms of its interpretation a proper respect for what are Historically known as the perfections of Scripture. Normally, within Reformed theology, four such perfections are distinguished. The first is, and we've really addressed that, the supreme authority of Scripture. There's no word beyond that given to us in Scripture. There's no word that trumps the Scriptures. There's no word that even stands alongside as equal to what is given us to know in Scripture. It's to use an analogy like the Supreme Court. When the matter's been brought to the highest court and the matter is settled properly by respect for what has been determined and given by that Supreme Court, you have no further recourse. Uh, I've said enough on that topic, but the second of those perfections is the necessity of Scripture. Now, here theologians historically... Will say the scriptures are not absolutely essential. And sometimes in places throughout the history of redemption, God dealt with and communicated himself to his people in a diversity of ways and modes prior to the inscripturation of the word. However, by virtue of God's good pleasure to give the church, and the church recognizes what God has given, the canonical scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. We may speak of the necessity of Scripture in the sense of a consequent necessity, in consequence of God's having chosen to administer and govern and shape and form the church's witness. The church has no other recourse. She doesn't have the freedom to go outside of the Scriptures. She must lean upon, depend upon, derive from all the matters that found, regulate, and administer the church as she bears witness to the truth to the ends of the earth, carries out the Great Commission, strikingly a commission that says, for the church's witness to be authentic, it must be a witness that teaches them all things whatsoever I have commanded you to do them. Now, it's particularly the third and fourth perfection that we need to reflect on for a bit. And they are not the authority and the necessity of Scripture, but the perfections of sufficiency and the perfection of perspicuity. I often say to my students, use the word clarity. Perspicuity is a bit of a tongue twister. So I'll use the language of clarity Now, what's the significance of these two attributes for our question? First, sufficiency. That means that we have a word from God in Scripture that is adequate or sufficient. We have enough to cover and address all of the matters of what the church teaches and of what the church commends in terms of our practice that it be conformed to God's will and to God's law, that we don't need anything more than or other than or in addition by way of supplement. God isn't making himself known throughout history subsequent to the closure of canon by modern insights, by new findings, by a new word or some other insight that allows us to do an end run around what's given us in the scriptures. The The most striking passage, I think, in the Word of God as to the clarity of Scripture is in that passage I mentioned earlier on inspiration. Paul goes on to say that not only is Scripture in its entirety breathed out by God, but he says it's been given by God for all of its purposes. It's profitable for these purposes in order that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's striking language. It says to us, that if a good work, as the confessions typically define them, a good work is anything done to God's glory. It's something that is done from true faith. In other words, it's a work performed not in order to obtain God's favor, but it's a grateful response to his saving grace toward us in Christ. So it's not a faithless work that is a work done to curry favor with God, but it's a grateful response to what God has done for us in Christ. It's done to God's glory. It's done from true faith. And thirdly, and most pointedly, it is done according to his holy law, not according to my whim or propensity or desire or opinion. I always sort of chuckle when I hear people refer to some passages in the New Testament, and we'll look at some of those in the forthcoming uh, session, uh, where they'll term a passage that they don't particularly enjoy or find acceptable, an apostolic opinion. Now, there are no apostolic opinions. When apostle in the name of Christ who sends him, empowered by the Spirit of Christ who is the Spirit of truth, as Christ says in John's gospel, who will bring to mind all the things that concern Christ and the gospel. They express not opinions, but they write, as Paul will sometimes say, by the command of God our Savior. So it's not an opinion. It's a word from God that is sufficient. But then let me lastly come to the fourth of these perfections. It's also a word that is clear. Now that too needs a bit of definition. The Westminster Confession acknowledges, Peter even says something about Paul's writings. Some of them are difficult to understand that evil men even take advantage of that by resting them to their own destruction. The Westminster Confession does acknowledge that not every passage in Scripture is a like plain. You need to study carefully. You need to be very disciplined in your reading of Scripture In order to come to a right understanding of its teaching. But the language of clarity is significant because it says God speaks a language. I think the theologian says the striking thing about Scripture is it speaks the language of every person. It's not given to us in obscure uh, scientific theological form, it's the common language. Even the New Testament is written in Koine common Greek. It can be if carefully studied and studied within the framework of the church as a listening community throughout her history, we can come to know what God is saying. I often use the illustration of the um, the proverb. I'm told it's a Dutch proverb, but in English, it's the only way I know it. it Somebody this effect, uh, he puts the cookies, it's about preachers. Some preachers put the cookies too high on the shelf. You know, parents, you put the cookies high on the shelf so as to make them inaccessible to the children who are snooping and eating too many cookies, so you put them out of reach. Well, as Luther said to Erasmus at the beginning of his On the Bondage of the Will, God is pleased to condescend to us in the scriptures, and in a manner of speaking, he puts the cookies within the church's grasp. It's not an obscure book. This is a devil's ploy, says Luther against Erasmus that only a few popes and some of the archbishops and princes of the church can actually finally figure out what God is saying in his word. God speaks human language, and he aims to make clearly known his word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. And we'll see that that's relevant because, uh, to sum this up, from the standpoint of the doctrine of Scripture and what I've said about the Church's relationship to the Word of God and God's giving us that Word and some of its perfections, there is a virtual unanimity. The Church has, with one voice, borne witness throughout 20-some centuries of its history. Across the whole spectrum of the Catholic, with a smaller case, C, the Church has understood on the topic of human sexuality— that God's design for such from the beginning was a relationship of one man and one woman committed to one another in covenant, within which the gift of human sexuality alone has its proper place. And it's a wonderful symbol, so much so that it is analogically used by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 as a portrait of the relationship spiritually between Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, and the church his bride. And that that is the norm that undergirds all of the scriptural uh, language regarding human sexuality in terms of what is prohibited or forbidden as contrary to God's good design, and what in Christ, through redemption, uh, is being restored to us. So this is, to sum it up, uh, the issue that I'm going to be addressing in a future session or two of modern debates and the church's challenge to address those debates regarding human sexuality really is at its core a fundamental question as to whether the confessing church or the professing church is going to continue to be a church that confesses in unity with the holy catholic christian church what she has heard her one and only master christ teach her clearly and sufficiently in his word about what is pleasing to him.
1: Join us next week as Dr. Venema begins to probe particular passages of Scripture in both the Old and New Testaments that describe homosexuality in more detail and how we should interpret these texts. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to MidAmerica Reformed Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchabor. Till next time.